In the ancient world, there was a great debate about who was the greatest painter uh, in all of Greece. And there are two painters that were very well known, very famous, and they finally decided to have, I think, what we might call like a painting showdown. And they brought the two painters together, and they placed these painters, given the same, camp, uh, the same type canvas, the same choice of, of uh, paint and so forth, same brushes, and they were put to work to each paint their most beautiful painting so they could finally decide who was the greatest painter of Greece. So the first painter uh, completed his painting, and the painting was absolutely a beautiful bowl of fruit in a glass bowl. The fruit was so perfect. You could see the texture on the peach. You could, you could see the curvature of the apple and so forth. Beautiful. In fact, even the glass bowl was so beautifully done you could even see the dim reflection of a woman's face as she looked at the fruit in the painting. Unbelievably beautiful. People gasp in awe. The second painting they brought forward was simply a painting of a curtain, kind of like the curtain that usually goes across here, just a curtain, nothing else. And pretty drab, not very flashy, just a curtain. So they, of course, questioned uh, the, uh, the uh, man about what's behind the curtain. Well, at that point, some birds come, came flying down, and birds began to peck at the fruit on the canvas of the other painting because they really thought, even the birds thought, it was really fruit. They turn back to the man, ask him what's behind the canvas, uh, behind the curtain. He says, I don't know. Well, after the much deliberation, the wise men decided that the greatest painter in the, all of Greece was the man who painted the curtain. The reason, they says, because the first canvas fooled the birds, but this canvas has stymied even the most wisest men of the land. And in some ways, I think that is a bit what happens, believe it or not, in Mark chapter 9. Because here we actually see a curtain being drawn back to reveal something which we could only have imagined might be so. One of the great mysteries of the Incarnation is that it is both a revelation and a concealing. It is both a manifestation as well as a mystery. The season of Epiphany, which we are bringing to a close, the word Epiphany means the manifestation. And it's about the way Christ was made manifest to the world. And it's all framed by two events, the coming of the wise men, where Christ is manifested to the Gentile world, but he's has done so as a helpless baby in a, a stall of an animal. It concludes the last Sunday of Epiphany, which is the one coming up this Sunday, is they, it concludes with a transfiguration where they see his glory, and the Father actually lifts the veil to see the true glory of God. And this event was so uh, uh, amazing to the disciples that the memory of it spills out all across the New Testament. And of course, it's found in the Gospel accounts that Christ on the mountain, we don't know if it's Mount Tabor, Mount, uh, different ideas about maybe Mount Hermon, but whatever that mountain, it's now is known as the sacred mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. And it brings out this whole mystery of the incarnation, about the revelation, and yet the, the hiddenness of the whole thing. On the one hand, uh, the incarnation is the greatest expression of God's self, God revealing himself in the most amazing way in the incarnation, yet... In the incarnation, he's veiled behind flesh. As Charles Wesley said, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, 
Hail the incarnate deity. Now the way Mark frames this in his gospel is Mark wants us to understand and feel this tension between the revelation and the mystery of the whole thing. So in Mark's gospel, there are three places during this period where Jesus explicitly predicts his suffering. It's in Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, and Mark 10.33. And now those three predictions of suffering, the almost exact same wording is used. The Son of Man must suffer. He'll be turned over to the chief priests and the scribes. Uh, he'll, be, he'll be crucified or he'll be killed. And then three days later, he will rise again. 8.31, But in every case, this is followed, that, that saying is followed by one of the manifestations of Christ's glory. So you have, for example, in Caesarea Philippi, you have this crazy, amazing manifestation of who, who he really is. When they meet there and, you know, who am I? And, of course, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you have the, the whole statement about uh, his suffering. Then you have the transfiguration. Then Mason will look at this later on. Again, followed by the same admonition about suffering. And then you have this amazing section of very, very difficult teachings on divorce, on the rich young ruler who walks away, all of those difficult texts. And then he has the third in 1033. Now I want us to look at this uh, middle passage and the transfiguration because this Sunday is Transfiguration Sunday. And let's see what is happening here in this passage. I need to get some water. Could you give me that water there, please? I had a, I sustained a little bit of a back injury this week, and I'm having a little water to get through this. All righty. So in, uh, in Mark 9, verse 2, they go up on a high mountain, and of course, the minute the text says, up on a high mountain. This automatically brings to mind the whole experience of Moses going up on the high mountain, especially in Exodus 34 where Moses sees the glory of, of God and Moses' own face gets shining and the veil over Moses' face because they couldn't stand the glory of his face. They go up on the mountain and there we're told he was transfigured before them. Now what we're going to see on this mountain is three revelations of the glory of Christ. This is the triple glory of Jesus Christ. This is kind of like the, uh, you know, here in Kentucky, of the triple crown. If a horse you know, runs the Derby and the Clarence, the Belmont and the Preakness and wins them all, this is like a triple crown, the triple revelation of God's glory. The first is this transfiguration. Now, the word that's used there is the word for metamorphosis. It's a transfiguration. They, they, they see this dazzling light. His clothes become so radiant, so white, they didn't know what, to, it was like on more white than anyone could bleach them. This is before the days of Tide, apparently. You know, the Super Bowl had like, like five commercials on Tide, didn't they? Tide. White. They were just speaking, they didn't know, they didn't know how to describe it. It was so white, so bright. The transfiguration, the, the Shekinah glory of God. It's as if God lifted back the curtain and they saw and glimpsed, a brief glimpse of the true glory and majesty of God. Well, if that wasn't enough, in 4 to 6, you have the revelation where suddenly they appears with him, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Now, Moses and Elijah appearing there has enormous significance. Now, think about it. Why wouldn't it be Isaiah or Jeremiah 
Why not Abraham? Think of all the people that could have appeared with Jesus at this sacred moment. But it's Moses and Elijah. It's not a mistake. It's not a random thing. There's no question that in anyone who read this and experienced will understand that Moses, for any Jew, represents the law. He's the great lawgiver. So by Moses showing up, he is acknowledging that Jesus Christ fulfills all of the law of God. This is the great moment where Christ is revealed as not only the great lawgiver, the new lawgiver in Christ, but also the one who has perfectly fulfilled the law. And of course, Elijah is the head of the prophets. All the prophets come forward from the stream of Elijah. Elijah himself was caught up into heaven. Elijah, we're told in Malachi, the last verse of the Old Testament, that he will come and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and children of their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. The whole Old Testament ends with the expectation of the coming of Elijah. And so here you have, in the presence of Christ, the law and the prophets all there. This is the way of, of God, re Father, revealing the glory of his Son, then showing, by virtue of their presence there, he fulfills all the law, he fulfills all the prophets. This is remarkable. If that wasn't enough, we come to the third and final of the three glories, the divine commendation in verse 7. Suddenly a voice comes from the heaven and says, This is my son, listen to him. Or this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now you remember in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses said, A prophet will come like unto me, you must listen to him. So again, this is the father reminding them, this is the one who was to come, you must listen to him. And by calling him son, this shows his eternal relationship with the father. So the full deity and glory of Jesus is made known in the transfiguration. It's quite interesting that this is the singularity of who Christ is, shows us and the way in which he's revealed. The whole of the ministry of Christ begins in the, uh, the, the, the way of Cain of Galilee, where the last spoken words of Mary in the Bible... All right, we see, we see her tears in Calvary, but we only hear her voice the last time in John's Gospel where he, she says to the servants, do whatever my son tells you. So Mary is pointing us to Jesus Christ. Here's the last commendation of his public ministry, earthly ministry by the Father himself who says, listen to him. The whole of the prophetic tradition, the whole of the legal tradition, the whole of the Old Testament points us to the singularity in Jesus Christ. All of the cherished signs of the Old Testament, the law, the temple, the prophets, the messiahship, the kingship, Jerusalem, priests, covenant, all of it finds its fulfillment in that one pearl of great price, Jesus Christ. No more do we need temple or king or fiery cloud. Now we have Jesus Christ. Now, the amazing thing about this is that this glory, this glory is now being shared with us through the gospel. Because this is the power of all this. And this semester, one of the emphases we want to make this semester is the importance of your being transformed. See, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that we are being transformed into his likeness. It's this same word here, metamorphosis. Romans 12 do not be conformed to this world. Be ye transformed. Same word here, metamorphosis. We are, to be, we are to share in this transformation. 
So the amazing thing about this, if there ever was an experience, which was the experience of another, you know, the glory of God revealed, the curtain uplifted, Moses and Elijah appearing, a commendation from heaven only appears three times in the entire New Testament do we have the Father speaking from heaven at his baptism on the, on the road and in uh, John 12 and then here at the Transfiguration. And so here that's a pretty remarkable experience. And yet here we have the New Testament saying we are to share in that glory. That same transformation is to happen in us and those who see us and look and pick up the veil in our lives. Right now throughout our country we're seeing a lot of veils being lifted up in the lives of many people. And we're seeing a lot of sinfulness, a lot of brokenness, a lot of pain. And the gospel tells us when the veil is lifted up on our lives, where people are to see the glory of God. They're to see us as those who are transformed, those who are being made more and more into his likeness. We become part of this great, great massive transformation that they're experiencing. And this is the good news of this passage because this same transfiguration that happened to Christ is actually happening because we are now in Christ. We are in him. And we experience the transformation that comes to the gospel. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing experience that you revealed your glory to your disciples. In the same way, we pray that we also will be transformed by the renewing of our minds, the renewing of our lives, our hearts, that we might be able to manifest through word and deed the glory of Christ, the risen Christ, and all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.